Hey guys, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. On the show today is Vipe Desai. Vipe is a longtime industry veteran of the board sports world. He's been at it for a long time. He's uh, done plenty of marketing and has worked with some of the who's who of the board sports arena. Vipe went on to form his own company called HDX Hydration Mix uh, back in 2011. It's a really cool hydration concept. But uh, most recently, he's been spending a lot of time as a board of director. And actually, for, for years, he has been. But he seems to be carving out a niche for himself as a really reputable and in-demand um, board member, working on ocean-related and environmental-related causes. Uh, um, with some really great organizations that you might have heard of, um, the Lonely Whale Foundation, um, Surfrider Foundation, and most recently, Ocean Champions. So we spoke about that. We spoke about the role that nonprofits play in the economy, how much of an opportunity that philanthropy is for um, and can be for businesses and brands, and how to bring profit and purpose together. Vipe's a really inspirational human. He's got a lot of passion. He's got a really, and he's really got a lot of exciting things going on. Super busy. Um, he's got his own podcast. It's called the Army of Game Changers. And he's just always up for a meaningful conversation. He's always willing to lend um, some insights and offer help and help and some guidance for others on their professional journeys and their uh, the building of their careers. So this was a great and fun conversation. Vipe's a great communicator, so the points come across with ease. Thank you for tuning in, taking the time to listen to these uh, great stories. Um, I hope you're as inspired as I am, but the goal here is just to share the vision of using business for something that can be a little bit more. And like I say later, the um, I think business can be done better, and in some cases it is. And here is Vipe's story. Welcome to the Underswell Podcast, news, stories, brand insights, product reviews, all to help you navigate the complexities of sustainability in your modern lifestyle. As I like to say, business can be done better, and in some cases it is. I'm Derek Sabori, I'm your host, and hey, it's just sustainability. Let's dive in to today's episode. All right, we're rolling. Hey, it's Derek Sabori. You're here on the uh, we're here on the Underswell Podcast Radio Show. I'm here with my friend uh, Vipe Desai. We're here at his offices on the uh, Outer Banks of Huntington Beach. Vipe, thank you for uh, taking the time to to chat with me. Hey, Derek, thanks for uh, inviting me on the show and also for making the trek all the way up here. And yeah, geez, just come. on on the other side of the road, no problem. Um, Vipe is um, an entrepreneur. He's a philanthropist. Um, He's got his own company. It's called HDX. He's been doing so many things. We're going to dive into that. Um, but Vipe, what I really love, I came to one of your, um, what you called your fireside chats. I know you really like to get your knowledge out there and share it with people and inspire others. And I think you're doing an amazing job of that. But I love how you've, your career has taken on this spin of philanthropy and activism and you're an advocate for the oceans and you have totally woven that into your career. So those are some of the things I want to talk about today. Hey, you know, thanks so much, Derek, and uh, I want to share those ideas with you because cool. I think uh, sharing how I discovered philanthropy and giving back, 
I think a lot of people can learn from. And, uh, you know, as you know, as you know, I got a podcast called Army of Game Changers. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, everybody thinks that the people that are on it, my guests are the army of game changers. But really, the idea is I want people who listen to the podcast to become part of that army of game changers. So mm. it's the listeners that I want to, you know, have. Uh, become this uh, army and uh, that's what we need you know it's like we've got a lot of crazy stuff going on in our country and our backyard and our planet as a whole and uh, look one of the only ways we're going to be able to fix that is if we get more people involved we need the right people involved and yeah. uh, we need them doing the right things well I think you're just the guy to do that because you're such a connector and I think if this wasn't a sustainability better business focused podcast I would so want to dive into just that the network that you built, the power of networking, we'll still touch on that and just your entrepreneurial spirit and such. But um, well, let's just see where where this takes us. But for sure, the underswell is a similar concept. You know, it's this idea of getting everybody together and, and following this, following that swell and, and riding it and doing something for a better cause. You know, yeah. Let's, um, let's hop that wave. Yeah, let's get on the wave. For those of you listening, if you're uh, if you're into video too, we got a we got a video of the uh, session. We're going to put it over on the YouTube channel, so our intern Dylan is, is manning the camera over there. So we're balancing between audio and video, but um, that way you can see Vibe's handsome face and his eclectic <laughs> office. So Vibe, give us a little background, though, just so we can have some context about you know who you are, what your early days were like, where you grew up, what you thought you would be, and um, I know you know your, your first, well, I know you first for your, um, your surf shop. Yeah, you know, the surf shop is really, I think, where um, I would say my career started, but it really began years before then. Um, and, you know, when you're young, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of ambition. You know, young people nowadays, it's like when they're 16, they've got ambition on lock. I did not have ambition on lock. I mean, when I was young, I was still like just about surfing and, you know, playing, you know, tag with my friends and horsing around with my BMX bike and all that stuff. It was just fun and that's it. And, um, you know, I'll tell you the first job that I had was really something that came back to me years later and I realized the importance of that, but it was working for Chick-fil-A. That was okay. your first job. That was my first job. Awesome. Okay. And I know there's people out there that probably have their hesitation about Chick-fil-A and their stance on some social issues and everything, but you know, this was the first company that I worked with that I learned cared for their employees. I mean, they were closed on Sundays because the founders believed that people should have that time to spend with their family and friends. I mean, that was before company culture was cool. That was a mandate from the company. And I didn't realize how important it was until years later when I went to go work for other people. And, you know, Saturdays and Sundays were on days. It didn't matter yeah. about friends or family. So that was one of the first things um, that I learned at Chick-fil-A was that uh, family was important. The company took it seriously and it was no ifs, ands, or buts. It was like Sunday is for family and friends and we will never change our policy. And look at it now today. Still, policy. Yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting. You know, that's cool that it creates that culture. And I think once you set that culture in place, then it, it gives you the freedom to, I think, or to just take a breath and be like, okay, it's okay. It's okay for me to go out and do something that's not work-related and not be judged for it. Absolutely. I mean, I loved to surf and I saw myself being able to go surf on Sundays when all my other friends had other jobs yeah, yeah. working at other fast food restaurants. And here I'm able to go surf 
and do what I want to do and they had to work and their days were off were different than mine but that one day on a weekend meant so much to me and it was years later that I was able to reflect on that that wow what a great experience I had there and what an amazing thing to walk away with and keep in mind for the future. Yeah, and were you able to? So after Chick-fil-A, then what, what comes next? Yeah, so after Chick-fil-A, um, I, uh, I enrolled in college, and I went to Point Loma Nazarene University down in San Diego. Okay. Uh, what did you study? Uh, business writing. Business, business writing. Business writing, okay. yeah. Um, and actually, that was by accident, too. I really wanted to go into music. But uh, when I got down there, I saw the music program, and it really wasn't where I wanted to go, so I had to quickly change my major, and that looked like the easiest major that I could get based yeah. on what, what classes I had already taken. And um, look, in all honesty, I think some people, most people probably pick a college based on the education and the degree that they want. I did not have that ambition or foresight. I went to Point Loma because I wanted to surf and it had amazing waves out in front. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I went there for the surf and for some crazy uh, way, I walked away with a degree. Awesome. In business writing, and I want to, <laughs> you've used that, I'm sure that's a, that's, well, that's, that's I, a skill. I, that is a skill and that was a skill that I didn't think I would use for, I didn't know when I would use it yeah. or how I would use it, but years later I realized that that was a great decision that I made because I was able to write proposals and business plans mm -hmm. and I was able to use numbers and language to weave that narrative and story. So by accident did I earn a business writing degree and lo and behold, it made a difference in my life. Yeah. So at what point then, so does straight from college, is, uh, does the surf shop come? Yeah, straight from college, I graduated, and um, like every young surfer who was ambitious to do something in the industry, I uh, started to put my resumes out to guys in the industry, to Quicksilver, to Billabong, all the usual suspects, and people weren't hiring at that time. I hadn't realized that there was some sort of war that was about to you know, take place, and I was oblivious to it. I was oblivious to um, world events. And here I was just like, I want to work for a surf company. And yeah, the surf industry is not hiring because they're, we're on the verge of a recession because we're going to war. Mm. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, a, a good friend of mine talked me into buying a surf shop because I had worked at a surf shop before while I was in San Diego going to school. And, um, you know, it was uh, probably the, the dumbest idea I had ever you know, bought into. It was it was a mistake for me to buy the shop and I don't know how I got through it unscathed, but it was an accident. I shouldn't I had no business being a business owner or an entrepreneur at that age. I didn't have my faculties and capacity and resources together. But you know, I think that was the first sign that I had a tolerance for risk. Hmm. Um, and I jumped into it head first and, you know, the day I closed on the deal, I got the keys and everything, and I opened up the shop the very first day. I walked in, I turned the TV on, and on the news is Wolf Blitzer talking about bombs being dropped in Baghdad. Oh, man. That was my first day as welcome, a surf shop Welcome owner. to the business world. Welcome to the business <laughs> world. And, uh, you know, it was fun. Uh, you know, I learned a lot in, about the surf shop business and everything, 
Um, guys didn't want to sell to me. I was a young kid, and their whole thinking was, who's this young kid? You know, We don't know who he is. He has no history in the industry. He doesn't look like one of us. We got all these other shops in the area. We're going to open them up or work with them. So you know, the industry really didn't embrace me. They didn't embrace um, the young entrepreneur. Um, and that was fine because it made me look for other ways to to find ways to build my business. So I had to be resourceful. Yeah, where'd you where'd you look to? Would what, give me some of the an example of something you found? Yeah, well, a lot of frustration. Okay. Um, not knowing what to do. Um, but uh, it's funny. I talked to a couple guys that you and I know very well. But uh, Tucker Hall and I went to school together. Oh, really? Yeah. So Tucker Hall, the co-founder of uh, Volcom. Yep, one of the co-founders. Exactly. Yep, okay. exactly. One of the co-founders. So I called up Tucker one day because uh, he and I were friends, and I was feeling a little frustration said, you know, Tucker, I'm really pissed off. I don't know what's going on, but I can't get any of these guys to sell me clothing. And Tucker's whole thing was like, well, that's funny. We can't get anybody to buy our stuff. It sounds like we're a perfect match. We're a perfect match. <laughs> so he and Wooly rolled down all sweaty and stinky with uh, screen printing ink all over them because they had pressed uh, shirts and shorts in their garage. And we bought their stuff. And I think we were one of the first three shops wow. between, I think, Surfside, Frog House, and H2O is what the shop was called. Jeez. back then just, so that was 91 92 and so uh, what a lesson just in uh, the power of the network power of friends I and mean, was that one of the first did that dawn on you sort of uh, how important that is yeah you know it, it, it dawned on me then but it also uh continued to dawn on me afterwards because there were other guys that i went to school with that went on in the industry that i could lean on so you know ricky irons and tony perez uh, both guys I went to school with at Point Loma and they ended up at the magazines at Surfer and Surfing Magazine. So I was able to rely on them for advice and input, even though they were at a um, at, at an early stage of their career. Yeah. Um, them being there, you know, was helpful to me. But Tucker being at Volcom was great, too. And us being able to carry Volcom. Um, you know, I've made relationships with other guys there like Troy Eckert and all these other guys. And look, I think one, one of the things that happens is I call that period the generational shift. Um, what happened was people were moving out of their, of, of their lane in that, you know, before then it was like, if you were a surfer or a skateboarder or a snowboarder, you stayed in your lane. You went to a skate shop, a snowboard shop, a surf shop, whatever it was. That period was where people were embracing surf and skate and snow and music. And, you know, Wooly and Tucker and Volcom, you know, were embracing and pushing that and art and everything. Mm. And we were feeling the same way. And none of the other retailers were feeling the same way. So we were kind of taking the lead of Volcom and going, you know, we feel that way too. So we started building that into the brand too. Of like, you know, let's add music into our, our retail store and let's really embrace art and skate and snow and all these things. So I think we were fortunate to be there. Volcom helped lead that charge and there were other brands and other shops that were doing the same thing, but it was the right place, the right time uh, for the wrong guy. I'd say. <laughs> well, uh, do you still regret it? Do you still, I mean, you, you say, you know, that was not a good decision or you weren't ready for it, but I mean, do you regret it or was it a, was it a good lesson? It was a great overall? lesson. Yeah. It was a great lesson. Um, you know, I, 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 I say that, um, you know, it was a bad decision at the time, yeah. but I made the best of it. I learned a lot and I had to be humble, but I also realized that uh, nobody was going to offer me any resources or help. I would need to either ask for it or build it myself. Yeah. And that's what I did. And when I started to build it myself, I saw other people rallying around me. When I started to build H2O into what it was, 
other people that were outside of the retail environment that were starting their own companies, whether it was sunglass, uh, you know, sandals, anything, they saw the same passion in me that they shared. And they said, we, this is the type of person we want to work for. Yeah. And I was like, well, you're the type of person I want to work with too. Yeah. So it was really just the right time. And like I said, that's why I think of what I call it that generational shift because it was a generation of new people that were changing the industry as a whole. It wasn't just a surf industry, a skate industry, but it was turning into the action sports industry. Interesting. What a great opportunity to be a part of that, you know. And I think it's a testament, though, to you too. It takes also being open to that and being like you, you, you saw it happening, being willing to adapt and able to adapt and to see something new coming and take it on, right? Yeah. What a great skill. Very, um, I'm sure it's a, it's a skill it sounds like that you're still using today. I'm still using it today. Yeah. I'm still using it. And you know, the other thing too that I learned in that early stage was I, that's when I really drew upon um, my time at Chick-fil-A and that, you know, I had to care about my employees. So I really took extra effort to make sure that the people that worked for me got every chance that they could to succeed. Mm -hmm. And I cared for them deeply. And um, it was so, so it, it's been so exciting for me to watch so many people that came to my shop and worked for me now become pillars in the industry. Yeah, no kidding. And start their own companies um, and have successful companies as mm -hmm. well that are driving the direction and the growth of the industry worldwide. So that makes me feel good that I got a chance to work with these guys. They gave me something to you know, drive my business, but they also learned something that gave them an opportunity to, you know, pursue their own dreams. Yeah. How long did that time period last? How long did the shop last? How long did it live for? Yeah. Shop was uh, eight years. Eight years. Yeah. A, a long time. And I think I grew up a little too quick. I mean, I was still young and owning a business and having to mind the financials and the business and everything that goes along with it was very stressful. Yeah. Um, you know, buying product, um, having seasons not work out the way that you want, being stuck with stuff. Yeah. Just, you know, it took its toll on me, I think. And at a young age, I didn't understand how to manage it. I didn't understand that I needed mentors and I needed to rely on other people. So it wasn't until a little bit later that I realized that, um, you know, I should have surrounded myself with smarter people. So it's it's so valuable though the lessons that we learn you know along the way and what, I mean for you just jumping into that fire I mean you got the you got the the, the second degree you know that's like getting a, a master's degree in business you know an MBA right there on the on the spot um, what comes after the shop so you that eight years go by and you close the shop down yeah so I shut the shop down and um, you know one of the other things too is like uh, you know. When we had to, when we were building the shop, one of the things that we had to do was really get, um, you know, deep into the marketing, and that was one thing that I didn't realize I had. But the shop also opened up this hidden passion of marketing and branding, and you know, look, we created this surf and snowboard contest called the H two O Winter Classic, yeah. and it it had a concert associated with it, with bands like Pennywise and Blink One Eighty Two playing at it. But that went on to help inspire the Warp Tour and yeah, the X Games. Yeah. Um, you know, so we did a lot in that eight-year period, but it was time for me to move on. And um, uh, a friend of mine talked me into starting a youth marketing agency with him, and he had the vision that um, you know there was a lot of non-endemic corporate interest in action sports and youth culture, and what that time, which which was uh, extreme sports. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a lot of interest, and I 
I think uh, my friend had this vision that he and I teaming up because he had the corporate knowledge and I had the industry knowledge that together we could help bridge that gap with the corporate industry. Mm -hmm. And so we started the agency and everything. And um, look, our first client was a little company out of Austria called Red Bull. Who's that? Never heard of them. Yeah, I never heard of them. <laughs> they make this uh, energy drink. Yeah. And so, you know, in 98, we launched Red Bull here in the US. Yeah, because in 98, I mean, no, nobody had heard of them, right? Nobody had heard of them. I mean, they'd been around for a few years. Um, they'd been doing, I think, about 35, $40 million in business worldwide. Okay. But here they hadn't found their their stride. Um, so when they came to us, they were kind of like, we've tried everything. Nothing else has really worked. We're willing to try something different. Wow. And we put out a marketing strategy for them. And it was based around the action sports industry. And the rest is history. Gosh. So um, did he, How did uh, you may have just said this, did, where did, did they come to you? Did they find you though? Or did you guys, were you guys already connected to them? No, we weren't connected to them. Uh, that was um, uh, my partner at the marketing agency yeah. that found them. Okay. Yeah. So he had been, you know, traveling and looking for clientele and looking for opportunities and, you know, learned that these guys were coming to the U.S., wanted to do something different. Mm. And uh, so it was right timing. Yeah. So that was a booster shot for your business, uh, I'm sure. It was. It was. It was a bit of a booster for the business and everything. Um, we didn't do a whole lot of business for them because it was still early days for them. But yeah. we did enough work, and then we picked up other clients as well, and you know, piecemeal stuff together. But it was my first foray into the service business because retail is where you're selling an item. This you're selling a service, so yeah. you have to come up with an idea that pleases the client. So I had to learn how to write business proposals and pitches and all that stuff and how to pitch and all that. So completely new territory for me. Uh, but I learned a lot. I think it was the next stage of my learning about marketing and business and philanthropy and branding and everything. So uh, retail was a great place to learn about consumer behavior. Now it was time for me to learn about business behavior and how businesses affect so many different things. Yeah. So, how long does the um, the marketing the marketing company last? And what was that called? At that time, it was called the shop. The shop, and um, uh, that lasted about uh, three years. Um, and then I, I decided that I wanted to go in a little bit of a different direction, and the shop was going to go in a different direction. Um, and I started my own agency called Propaganda. Yeah. Um, and that's where I wanted to focus a lot on action sports. Um, and um, really focusing just around action sports and um, you know more around events as well. So we picked up a number of different clients in the industry. We worked a little bit with Quicksilver, with Billabong, with Hurley, and so forth. Um, and um, you know one of the things that happened at that point was um, I got my first taste of philanthropy. Yeah. Um, when the folks at Surfrider Foundation approached me and asked if I'd do some pro bono work for them and you know I didn't really understand what pro bono meant but I said hey I, I, I know the Surfrider Foundation I don't know exactly what you do but um, uh, you're a charity so let me I'll help however I can and uh, that was my first uh, introduction to philanthropy. So maybe for our younger listeners, students, or just anybody who just doesn't know, what does that mean to do pro bono work? What does that What does that entail? Yeah, to do pro bono work is pretty much to do something for free. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know you're using the resources that you have and sharing them with somebody else because they don't have them and they can't afford them. Mm. Um, and you know I've always believed that uh, you know. Uh, nonprofits are doing amazing work. They're doing tremendously important work. 
And I think it's in every individual and every business's obligation to support a nonprofit that aligns with their values. So I preach that all the time. Yeah. So this is this is this is the meat of it now. Um, at the at the time, did you have that same feeling? Did you know how important that was? Did you hesitate, just going, "Wait a minute, I can't do things for free"? Did you already know about Surfrider Foundation? Was it an easy win or was there any sort of like, wait, what, you know? Yeah, you know, it's a combination of things. You know, pr- prior to the Surfrider Foundation, and that person was Matt McLean. He was okay. the director of marketing and communications there. You know, prior to that, my outlook on philanthropy and charities was that who are these freeloaders thinking that they can just call me up and ask me for a buck or two for whatever they're doing? Why do they want everything for free? Why do they want everything for free? Who are these guys, you know? And I didn't really have the maturity to understand what they were doing. And thank God that when Matt approached me, I was in a much more mature state of mind and I was open to thinking and understanding what their needs were. So prior to that, I didn't know what charities did when Matt came to me. I understood that there was an opportunity for me to do something and build up my portfolio, but also learn what they were doing. And if it helped them, I'd be happy to do so. Um, so it was it was new ground for me. Yeah, absolutely. And how, how, did that project go did it go well? And did you get hooked on that idea? I mean, how long did it take before you understood the importance of philanthropy and nonprofit work? Yeah, where'd you, you, where'd you take it from there? I guess. Yeah, you know, Matt and I became good friends, and he and he continued to um, educate me on uh, Surfriders' work mm-hmm. and their mission, and I got to learn a lot, and I got to also add in my thinking of Have you thought about approaching it like this? So I think for him, you know, he was educating me, and I was planting seeds in his mind of like cause-related marketing, and not really even thinking of, that it's cause-related marketing, just like. How do you do this? I mean, have you thought about this? You know, but, uh, uh, you know, I think um, it was one of those things where we just continued to progress the relationship. Um, I continued to provide pro bono services. Matt and I became good friends. And in all honesty, the work that I was doing uh, was winning awards. It was getting recognized in Surfrider across the board from in, in staff and also the board. And that's when um, uh, the board approached me and asked if I would be interested in joining their board of directors. Which is a big deal. Which is a big deal. And I had no idea how big of a deal it was. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just like, oh, board of directors. Sounds pretty interesting. What is it? More free work. Yeah, more free work. <laughs> wow, what does this entail? And... Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you that invitation to join the board of directors for the Surfrider Foundation was a pivotal moment in my personal and professional journey. Wow. Hands down, it was the most important thing I have ever done uh, to sit in a room with people who are doing amazing work to protect our oceans around the world in a room of 15 board members and a handful of staff, you know, strategizing what are the issues and how are we going to tackle this behemoth task. Um, Wow. I mean, I was in the war room. And so to maybe explain to us too, for those that don't know, haven't been on a board, you know, so you've got your board, you've got the company itself on the company proper that's running itself. How, what's the difference there and what do you guys accomplish as board members? Yeah. So look, as a company, I'm, I'm able to provide pro bono services that the Surfrider Foundation didn't have internally. And most of those were like design services. If they needed um, a flyer done um, or um, any ad, ad laid out or anything, we would just provide it for them yeah. and anything else that they needed creative wise. On the board, it's a different mindset. Uh, you have to take off the company hat because you're not there to you know promote your mission mm-hmm. or your purpose. You are there to 
you know, uh, work for another cause, which is the Surfrider Foundation. I right. think sometimes people have a hard time taking off their hats when they go into a boardroom. So the first thing is that, you know, you go into the boardroom and you understand that you are working towards what is best for this organization. So part of that is that looking at budgets, how are budgets allocated and what is the strategy and what is the long-term plan for this organization and does this make sense and you know are you fighting the right fight mm. so really taking a look at decisions on a higher level making sure that is this organization doing the right thing if they are doing the right thing do they have the right plan in place and if they have the right plan in place do they have the resources yeah and if they don't if either of those things are not in alignment, it falls on the board of directors to step up to the plate to help open that up for the staff uh, so that the organization is successful. So it is like being an em uh, employed, but you're not paid. Yeah. And look, the other thing too is that, um, I, I won't sugarcoat this, but um, being on a board is, is, is a pay to play. Yeah. You know, you want to be on the board, you got to, you know, donate some money. Yeah, or, um, or bring in donations or, or bring, bring in, in friends that can donate yeah absolutely yeah. so you know it's it's not something where you know you get on there and you pat yourself on the back and say hey I'm on the board of directors there's a responsibility there's a huge responsibility and it goes beyond just bringing in money but it's also the fiduciary responsibility of making sure that this organization says and does what it does when it collects money from other people yeah how long were you on the board there uh, six years okay six years two terms uh, Three two-year terms. Two -year That's the maximum that you can serve. And my last two I served as its vice chair. Wow. So, but that parlays into more more board opportunities, right? And other nonprofits. So at that point, are you now sort of realizing, like you said, the power of nonprofits? And is that changing the way you're doing business too? And just sort of changing your outlook on, on business and entrepreneurship, I guess? It's, um, it's at the very early stages of that mindset. Um, I'm realizing that uh, nonprofits are important. Yeah. Um, the right nonprofits are important as well. I should find other ones that I align with and see how I can help them. And um, it's still at the early stages. Um, you know, I think nonprofits were in a good position, and now over the last five years, the model has changed. Mm. So that's what I've been working on is what's changing in the nonprofit sector. So I'm going to touch on that, but I also yeah. want to know, like, why do you think nonprofits are so important? What role do they play in sort of the economy and just business in general? Yeah, look, from, from, from a society's perspective, we have a lot of, social and environmental issues that fall to the wayside. We think that government should help manage these issues for us, uh, whether it's homelessness, education, um, the environment, the ocean, clean water, any number of things. I mean, there's thousands of issues out there. Some of these things cannot be handled by the government. They're not set up for it. Some of it cannot even be uh, set, uh, run by businesses. They're not set up for it. So that's where nonprofits come in. They come in to pick up the pieces that other entities leave behind and they shine a light on them. And hopefully those issues are important to people and to other businesses and to our government to enact policy or help to you know fund these organizations to correct these issues. Yeah, so they bring attention to it, bring energy to it, and because this is an explaining podcast and a learning podcast, What's, what is unique about a, a nonprofit, though, compared to a regular corporation or even a government entity? 
Yeah, look, um, each of these entities have their pros and cons. Um, with a nonprofit, the challenge is that uh, there's a business model that is difficult to operate. You are constantly asking for donations. Yeah, that's how you're funded. For the that's most how part. you're funded. And that funding is faith-based. Do yeah. I have faith in this organization to do what they do and how much am I willing to give them? Yeah, That's hard for people. Philanthropy is mature subject matter. Um, people work hard for their money. It's hard for them to say, you want me to give you $5, but I got to put food on the table. Or with $5, I could download three songs. I earn this money and you want me to give it to you. So it's mature subject matter, but these organizations don't have very many other ways to get funded. So between individuals and grants and foundations, they're doing important work and that's their money. So that's the challenge for these organizations. There's so many of them. And they're always looking for money. And God bless them. They're doing great work. But money's hard to come by. Yeah, it's a crowded space too, right? And and there's crowded issues because whether it's, like you said, the environment or maybe it's plastic pollution or something about the ocean or homelessness, all those that you listed, everybody's vying for those those dollars, right? It's very competitive. So Vibe, um, saying that, what other than, how did that transition into other nonprofits? Because I know you've worked with a few other nonprofits since then. Yeah, I've worked with quite a few. And in all honesty, um, look, one thing I'll say is that joining the board of Surfrider Foundation was probably the best thing I could have ever done to start working with other nonprofits. That is a very tough board. That is what they call a working board. Mm. It's not an easy one to be part of. There was a lot of work involved. I learned a lot, but I also realized that I can't just be a thumbs up, thumbs down board member. Yeah. Um, it took a lot of involvement, regular meetings, call, calls on a regular basis, getting my hands dirty as well. So I think that's what really kind of like prepared me for other boards. Um, afterwards, I think what happened was word gets around. It's like when you're on the board of Surfrider Foundation, when you're terming off, People kind of keep track of who's on the board and other people start reaching out to you once you get closer to um, getting, you know, getting off the board. But, um, you know, uh, I don't know if you remember a gentleman by the name of Dick Baker. Yeah, yeah, of course. So Dick was one of my mentors, close friends, and um, he got me to join the uh, board of SEMA Humanitarian Fund when he and Fernando were starting it. Okay. So he knew that I was ready for that and I could bring some additional insights into it from serving on Surfrider. So Dick saw that and right away just said, we're starting the humanitarian fund. You're going to be on the board. So that got me into my second board. And I, what I learned there was the starting of a foundation. And that was a foundation that gave money away. So, you know, people would submit grants to us. So I got a whole different set of experience and what it was like to be on the the grant-making side and how to look at these entities that we're asking for money and which ones do we give money to and how much should we give them and how do we hold them accountable. But then I also got to make friends with a lot of the guys that were on these, um, on these uh, part of these organizations as well. And um, I joined the board of Life Rolls On Foundation with Jesse Billauer. Awesome. Um, which helps, uh, re they help uh, spinal cord Yep. Um, injury yep. athletes, right? Athletes with spinal cord injuries. There we go. Thank you. Exactly. And, um, you know, that gave me a different look because, you know, Surfrider was all about environmentalism. And now I saw this with health and young people and an injury. 
um, and how we had an opportunity to help people who had received a spinal cord injury to continue living their life and not use it as a life-ending you know, tragedy. It's yeah. like, you know, you still have another life. So it was great working with Jesse. He was an inspirational young leader. Yeah, he really is. I got to work awesome. with him quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, learned a lot about being on that side of the foundation, something that was growing and lots of activities going on. So it just continued to progress. And I kept uh, looking at adding more uh, board positions and serving on boards. I really enjoyed it. I found that I learned a lot. I made really great friends with people mm -hmm. um so it was uh this kind of like other life that i was living um but i was learning so much and while i maybe got my master's in action sports business through my retail store philanthropy really kind of blew you know everything else out the door you know as far as learning about bigger issues and how so each of these each of these terms is anywhere from two to three years for each of these right so time is passing by are you are you double stacking on these um board membership roles or are these sort of one after another that you're doing them? Yeah, I'm, I'm stacking up. And at one time, I believe I was serving on four boards wow. at one time, but I was getting so much out of it. And, you know, I, the other side of it was that I was, I, I was so stoked on what I was contributing to these organizations, development and growth that I got to the point where I realized that I've been so fortunate to have this experience of business and marketing and entrepreneurship and made friends with so many people in the business world, why hold all these relationships and experiences back and not share them with people that could benefit from them? So it was really the opportunity to help these organizations succeed as much as they could. Um, whereas I think, you know, people in most instances would be like, okay, I've made this network and I have all these relationships. How do I capitalize on them? And my thing was like, well, how do I give more of this stuff away? Because I see how these organizations are benefiting from it. So how were you, I, I like that idea of, of shifting the focus of capitalizing on them for, for somebody else, but how are you balancing all of this too? Because at the same time, you're still running your business and had you, has HDX come into play yet? HDX has not come into play okay. yet. This was still the agency. And I think what happens is, in the agency world, um, a lot of creativity is is needed. Yeah. And I used the nonprofits that I served on the board of and provided pro bono work as my creative outlet. Because a lot of times when you work with a client, you come up with this amazingly creative idea only to have the client like chip away at it and turn it into something very bland. Yeah. Because of budget or timing or any other issue. So really with the nonprofits, I could think as big as I wanted to and be as creative as I wanted to. And if I could put the plan together and help carry the football and be part of it, they were all like, you know, open to the idea. So it was a creative outlet for me as well. Yeah. How about um, connecting corporations and why, because I know you believe this, but why is it so important for corporations or brands to get involved with nonprofits and to and to give because a big part of your role, like you said, was using that network to connect with them. What was your pitch to them? And not all brands have that built into them. You know, sometimes it takes a shift for them to say, "Hey, you know what? You're right. We do need to give." You know, I remember at Vulcan, Matt was uh, Matt was one of the first ones that got me thinking. Yeah, you're right. Surfrider is so big, but they need funds just as well as the other small community nonprofit. You know, so what role did you play there, and when did you kind of have? How did you talk to companies who weren't ready to, to give and how did you get them to give? 
Yeah, you know, look, I, I, it was uh, putting on two hats at that time. It was wearing my uh, my agency hat and mm-hmm. also wearing my philanthropy hat. And you know, part of it is that businesses are looking for an ROI. Okay, so it was showing them that if you work with a nonprofit that aligns with your company, your product, your brand values, uh, uh, identifies with your audience, and you can create something of a relationship with this nonprofit you will create a marketing plan that feeds into your business. So it's alignment. I think a lot of times businesses, they don't look at philanthropy as alignment for marketing. They just look at it like, oh, we got to do a beach cleanup because, you know, we we hear, we read a report that, you know, customers like companies that do good. Yeah, we need to check that off the box. Yeah, exactly. Tick the box. Exactly. And, And we've evolved, you know, years ago, it was about, Companies taking one time out of the year, International Surfing Day, to do a beach cleanup or something like that. But the other 364 days, what are you doing? Mm. Um, and then it evolved into something a little bit more where it's like, okay, well, hey, we're going to have a sustainability officer. We're going to talk about sustainability. We're going to collect trash. Or we're going to recycle and all that stuff. Great. There was this gradual evolution. And not every company has done this. I think, in all honesty, right now, here and today, we are just at the tip of the iceberg on this movement. Mm, okay, we haven't great. we haven't even realized its full potential yet. We're still going in the right direction, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. Where are we today? Today, businesses are required to not only share what their values are, but they also need to stand up for them and speak out for them. Mm. There are so many things going on that can take away from our society that businesses have the opportunity to help stand alongside these nonprofits. And what I mean by that is, look, if, um, if we talk about issues, uh, let's talk about environmentalism. You know, when the Trump administration came out going against our public lands, you saw Patagonia come out swinging. Yeah. Okay, they came out swinging really hard. That's the type of activism that we need. It's brand activism. Our friend Jim Moriarty from Surfrider yeah. uh, taught me about this brand activism, and I've always believed in it, but he named it. And w- w- what it means is that your organization is willing to put its business on the line to defend a value that is important to its company culture. Patagonia is an outdoor brand. Its customers enjoy the outdoors. The outdoors are public lands. When the administration comes along saying that they're going to take public lands away, it was a smart thing for Patagonia to sue the administration and speak out as boldly and as loudly as it did. And you know what happened? They pushed back on the Trump administration. They made a lot of noise. They got that message on the mainstream news, but it also increased their sales as well. So that's a very risky place to be. If you're a publicly traded company, I think you're forbidden to go that politically inactive, but that's where it's going. You know, it's like customers are going to want to see that their brands are activists. Yeah. And what do you, I mean, of course, uh, so you see an increase in sales. What else is, uh, what else, what other benefits do you think? I mean, I, I believe that's, it just creates loyalty. Customers just become rabidly loyal to that brand right when they stand up for what they what they also believe yeah well i think what happens is that you know there's this really healthy ecosystem that's created when that happens you have customers of patagonia that you know love the brand already for what it does and it does something else and it takes it to a whole nother level and now the customer is engaged at a whole nother level as well and now they are part of the activist movement as well going gosh i bought this patagonia jacket look at what they did 
they pushed back on the administration. Gosh, I feel empowered. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go and vote. I'm going to sign a petition and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to read this book. I'm going to write an article. I'm going to tweet about this. You know, so it, it elevates that engagement in a whole nother way. Um, so I think for Patagonia, they, they are a great template and a business model to follow. I agree. I agree. Talk to me. So you touched on it. Um, how about voting? How about getting involved in voting? I know you're, I know you're involved uh, there as well. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that side of being an activist. Yeah. You know, that's something I thought I would never be involved in politics. And boy, the last uh, 10 years, I've uh, been educated about the political process and I realized that I needed to be part of it. And I learned it through my friend David Wilmot. David and I served on the board of Surfrider Foundation together. He's also the founder of Ocean Champions. And he asked me when uh, I left Surfrider if I would ever, if I would ever, um, you know, want to serve on the board of Ocean Champions. And I had said, hey, look, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't want to be politically involved. I don't understand it. It's too hot potato of a subject. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. And as I started to spend more time with him and I went to the board meetings just to meet other board members and I went to some of the events and the things that they were working on, I realized that this is a missing piece to the bigger picture Yeah. of, you know, it's like, okay, great. We can have, you know, activist campaigns of saying we don't want a toll road down in San Clemente and we don't want plastic bags and all that stuff. But if we really, really want to make lasting change, we have to engage our policymakers. We have to get the lawmakers involved. Yeah, I really agree. Well, funny, funny, one of my previous uh, podcasts with, with this young man, his name is Jackson Hinkle. He and some San Clemente students are running for city council trying to take because they believe that. Jackson also wants to be president one day because he's like, hey, that's the only way you get things done and nothing gets past these few key decision holders. Tell us about Ocean Champions, though. So what is what is their role? What do you guys do there? Yeah, so let me let me tell you an interesting story about Ocean Champions and their role. So um, we did some research uh, out of the Ocean Champions office, and I wanted to find out how many nonprofits there were in the ocean space. 23,742 nonprofits working on ocean Jeez. and marine issues. Really? In the U.S.? In the U.S. Okay. Lots of competition. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of overlap. Yep. All are probably great organizations doing tremendous work. Mm-hmm. There was only one political organization focused on ocean policy, and that was Ocean Champions. Ocean Champions is a 501c4. That is, That means that it's a political organization. Okay. Other nonprofits are C3, so that's yeah. a tax designation. Okay. C3. And C3s cannot be political or religious. Exactly. Right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Well, they can't be political. They can be religious. Uh, you know, churches are religious, so okay. they, can, they can be that. But what happens is their bylaws restrict them from the a type of political work they do and the amount of political work that they oh, do. It. So they could do a little bit of lobbying, yep. okay, but not deep lobbying. That's where Ocean Champions comes in. We realized, and David realized this, was that all these organizations could go and talk to lawmakers about how bad the you know things are for the environment, plastic bags and straws and all these other things. But you needed that lawmaker to be on your side if you wanted your issue to get attention. Yeah. Okay, so David's whole thing and the whole team at uh, Ocean Champions early on was, well, let's elect more Ocean Champions into the House and the Senate. So we started to interview these people that were running for um, the House and for the Senate. 
and we said, what is your policy on oceans? And, you know, what's your stance on this and different issues? And we were able to designate which ones were good ocean champions. And then we started to endorse them. We started a fundraise for them and we wanted to work with them to help get them elected. Mm. So once they got elected, environmentalists could go to them and say, plastic bags are bad for our oceans. And we could work with them and say, you know what, you're right. And the politicians would come back and say, let's look at legislation. Yeah. So that's what's happened over the years. And in 15 years, Ocean Champions has helped elect 120 people into the House and the Senate. Wow. And give um, voters like me, like us, right, um, access to that information of who is standing up and voting for the oceans and who's not. Absolutely. Based on their voting records, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Really cool. Yeah, you invited me to one of your um, one of the meetings and or one of the what was it a night kind of just to get some more information it was it was really cool really insightful because i wasn't aware of what they were doing so some great work yeah they're doing some amazing work our work is uh, far from done we need to uh, like more ocean champions but to me as a as a as an entrepreneur and somebody that's involved in business who relies on a healthy planet and a healthy ocean and so forth this all aligns with everything i have a business my business tries to minimize its impact on the planet it works with employees and it gives them the best opportunity it can possibly do to help them to succeed. Our values are helping to support nonprofits that are doing a work that helps our values at the company. And then personally and also as a brand, we are working with lawmakers as well. So I'm looking at it from all angles. That it's not just not money, but it's also philanthropy and it's also political process. And I and it's also I like that you're you know it's about the environment, it's about people, it's you know people, planet, profit, all of it tied together, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And look, you know, one of the things I always say, and I'll repeat it again here, is that look, I do this because I truly believe that the ocean is the most powerful economic engine on this earth. It is. So many things rely on a healthy ocean. And without a healthy ocean, there's no healthy people, planet, or profits. That's just the fact of it. It's true. It's true. It's the the blue planet for uh, for a reason. You know, it's, what is it, 98% water or something like that? Yeah, exactly. And I know you've done some other Skatistan you were a part of as well. Yep. Right, which is another amazing nonprofit. But it's, I think, your, your resume of the nonprofit work that you've done is really, really impressive. What what nonprofit are you on a nonprofit board right now? Yeah, well, I'm still on Ocean, Ocean Champions, Champions. Um, and uh, about a year and a half ago, I joined the advisory board for Lonely Whale Foundation, which yeah. was started by Adrian Grenier. Stop sucking. Stop sucking. Yeah, exactly. come on, come on, guys. Yeah, if you haven't ditched the plastic straws. straws yet. Yep, exactly. And look, I'm really proud of that campaign and what Adrian and the whole team has brought to the table because. It brought a level of creativity that hadn't been seen in the nonprofit world. Oh, it's huge. Huge. It's done a great, and I even read something that plastic straws will be the, um, you know, the smoking cigarettes of, you know, of, of today kind of thing. So if you're caught using a plastic straw, it's just as bad as being caught smoking cigarettes, right? It's like, Absolutely. what? How could you? <laughs> Absolutely. It's a gateway drug to, you know, every other single-use plastic that we True. use. Yeah. Um, you know, s- single-use plastic straws have no place in our society. Um, and you know, if you do need a straw, there are alternatives like paper and reusable straws mm-hmm. that are readily available to restaurants and businesses and individuals. So an alternative is already there. It's just the industry has decided not to move in that direction. And now we're with working with local governments and businesses and so forth. We've started to enact policy to ban single-use plastic straws, but businesses are saying, you know what? 
this is bad for my bottom line. I want to change this. And they're doing it on their own. So, you know, with Seattle banning plastic straws, but then Alaska Straw, uh, Alaska Airlines getting rid of it. Yeah. Starbucks is now committing McDonald's, to getting McDonald's. The, the, all um, the big players. Aramark, yeah. all these guys yeah. are. So it's this domino effect. It's not going to solve our problems, but it's definitely a step in the right direction because it's engaging people. It engages people. It brings awareness. And it gets you thinking. You're just going, that's right, something so innocuous, something so simple as that plastic straw. It's like it's bad yeah you know and it opens your eyes like you said to the bigger problem that is single-use disposable plastic absolutely and look as a business owner you know you look at it and go do i should i be spending my time on this issue and to me i say yes absolutely as a as a owner of a business as a leader in my business i need to show that this issue matters to the people that we call our audience and the people that I work with, but also it's important to me. So I, I would encourage any business owner to really look at elevating their philanthropy and what they do. It's not just, hey, if you want to give money or something like that, that's totally fine. I'm not knocking that. But I think there's an opportunity for every single one of us to step up even more. Yeah. Um, and I think you, you, you nailed it. I was sort of going to sort of ask for, hey, what would your plea to corporations, to managers, and to business owners out there be? And I think you've, you've been answering that all along the way because there's just an opportunity to engage, engage your customer, show, you know, increase loyalty, differentiate your brand. And like you said, I think I agree. I think we're at the earliest stages of it. So there's still so much opportunity for brands to adopt a real stance on values you know, and show their customers that they're doing something that's not that doesn't just revolve around the you know the uh, the bottom line. Yeah, look, brands need to differentiate, and yeah. that there's always going to be competition. And if there's a hundred brands out there, and all of them now have an organic T-shirt, that no longer is a differentiator. Yeah, exactly. If all of you do a beach cleanup, that's no longer a differentiator. You have to look at further differentiation and running a completely different type of ad on Facebook or in the magazine or a different commercial or sponsoring an athlete or sponsoring an event is no longer a differentiator. I think the differentiation comes from the top down and that is from leadership. What does leadership think about the issues and what values are they going to speak up and stand up for that involves their employees? If you employ people that maybe have um, that, that have immigrant families, you should probably get involved in the immigrant issue mm. you know and speak out, stand up for these families. you know so I encourage owners to you know, Put themselves out there. It is a risk that will uh, come with a great reward. Yeah, I think so. And I think you're hitting a sweet spot too. Like get involved in things that are meaningful to you, that are in the area that you do business, that resonate with either your customers or your employees. You know, because often you see things, uh, companies maybe doing something, doing philanthropy for philanthropy's sake. And it's like I'm not sure there's a connection there. It's like do something in your in your backyard. Yeah, you know? I see a lot of that still where companies are just trying to like do something to check a box and say and that, to hey, add up the donations through the rest of the year through the year or something. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And you know, um, it's okay to do that. But sure. you know, look, I think uh, hopefully those companies and those founders evolve their thinking and that is just the first thing that they do. Yeah. And I see it too. It's like a lot of these brands are looking to elevate their philanthropic efforts. Yeah. Um, so I love helping brands do that. I, you know, I get lots of brands calling me, asking me about what more can they do. And I, I I'm excited that they're even in, 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 you know, interested in doing that. So can people, I mean, you're still, you're not, are you, do you still do consulting? Do you want people reaching out for you to consult or you're, um, should we tell us about your HDX company now? What's, uh, what, what are you doing now? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, uh, you know, I'm not consulting, but I'm being asked and hit up for consulting. 
Um, the big thing that I'm doing now is um, I, I'm requesting and looking at board seats on corporate boards. Mm. Um, to me, I feel as if I can be much more effective and bring every ounce of knowledge and relationship that I have into the boardroom yeah. and be so much more engaged with the founder where it's like, hey, you know, it's like if you have something that you want to get involved in on a philanthropic basis, you know, give me a call or ping me with an email and I'll, and I'll point you in the right direction and answer some questions for you. But if you really want to build this into the fabric of your brand for the long term, I need to be in the room, in the war room to yeah. really help guys out. And, um, you know, I've started to, you know, join some of these corporate boards as well to help inject some philanthropy in them. So that's really what, what you know, how I'm kind of approaching it. Okay. You heard of CEOs, CFOs out there, COOs, hit up Vibe. Vibe, tell us real quick as we start to wrap this up. Tell us about the Rising Tide Summit and um, just kind of, you know, give us a, how people can best um, follow along with what you're doing as well after, after that. Yeah, look, uh, the Rising Tide Summit is one of the things that has been brewing in my mind for years and years of understanding what's been going on in the ocean conservation space, the meetings that take place, um, the way businesses are looking at this issue and the answers that they're still searching for. So the idea was, you know, could I bring people together under this idea of the Rising Tide Summit a la South by Southwest for our ocean? Mm. Um, and, you know, put together people that um, served in an elected position, you know, are impact investors, are working in industries that may be impacted by climate change or our oceans and so forth, and nonprofits and funders. And the idea is like, let's get all these people together and have a dialogue of what we can all do because we need innovative solutions. And the only way we can get innovative solutions is if we collaborate and cooperate together. So that was the idea. We just held the first one in March. I'm really excited. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks. Uh, really exciting the way that it worked out, the dialogue that took place, and I'm already uh, working on next year. So once again, it's a spinoff of what I've been doing, but it complements my board positions. It complements my personal values, my professional values, and what HDX is all about as well. Yeah, so it's ama it's almost amazing to think this after all that you've told us that you've been involved in, all the things that you're doing, that you also run your company, HDX. Yeah. Give us a plug for that. Tell us what HDX does. So yeah. It's a unique model. Yeah, so look, HDX is a uh, sports drink mix, and I, I reversed engineered the model. I looked at two of the things that were affecting me from a health perspective and an environmental perspective, and what could I do to help solve this problem? Um, in the sense that one, I got diagnosed with type two diabetes years ago, mm -hmm. so I had to manage my health and whatever I put into my body, but there was a lot of sugary drinks out there. Um, but everything that came in this, in this, uh, it, the sugary drink came in a single use plastic bottle, which was ending up in a landfill or our ocean and was never going away. So I saw two problems, you know, the, the health of a beverage and then also the environmental impact that came with it, transportation, refrigeration and all that stuff. So I really wanted to kind of go out there with a different narrative of like, you know, rethink your drink. If you want to talk about health and the environment, here's something you can do. It's powder. It's healthy ingredients. You add it to your reusable water bottle. Just fill it up with water and you're good to go. Minimal waste. Yeah. healthy for you. So it's really just getting people to rethink their drink and how they can have uh, an impact on their environment. If they want to do something, hey, you're going to use a reusable bag. Great. Checkbox. Hey, you're going to get rid of single-use plastic straws. Great. You got the reusable bottle. Phenomenal. Now, what do you put in it, you know, to kind of 
amplify that engagement with your reusable bottle. It's not just for water. It's not just for water. Yeah. Exactly. So really, that's been a fun dialogue to have. And like I said, everything that I do fits into that narrative around health of people, but mm-hmm. also the environment as well. Yeah. And I, I, even one of your posts I saw a while ago, it was just how many units of your item you can fit into such a small footprint compared to, you know, bigger bottles, bigger boxes, more transportation, more fuel, more emissions, so on and so forth. So it's a really cool model. So congratulations. Thanks. Bipe, it's really, it's almost overwhelming just with all the things that you're doing. And I know um, you, you're really active on LinkedIn. So I know people can find you on, on LinkedIn. Um, you've got a great podcast, uh, Army of Game Changers. Yeah. Um, you've got your. You're doing. Are you still doing your fireside chats and things in person and just kind of sharing your knowledge and. Yeah, I am. Uh, fireside chats are starting up in August. Cool. Again, um, I've been uh, speaking at a number of schools over the last couple of months and yeah. also um, uh, being flown out to events as well to talk. So the fireside chats kind of got started and then I got taken away f- to go and talk. Uh, or the speaking engagements, but I'm going to bring those back uh, in the next month. Cool. Well, you're so busy. It's really fun to uh, to keep up with you. I'm, I'm glad to know you and be able to watch your journey unfolding here. And I'm so, um, I think your, your career is really inspiring for others. On a last note, because we have a lot of uh, young listeners and I think young professionals who are intrigued with sustainability, intrigued with doing business better, using business, um, as they say in the B Corp world, as a force for good. What do you recommend to student? Because not everybody gets into the sustainability profession, right? And you didn't even set out necessarily to do that or be an activist. What's your advice to young people who are at a job right now, not feeling like they're empowered or getting into their career, going to school? What do you have to say to them? Yeah, look, uh, first thing I would say, listen to your podcast, uh, The Underswell Uh, with Derek Sabori, because look, you've been involved in sustainability for a long time, and you were one of the first guys that I met that was officially recognized as a sustainability expert at a company. So, you know, you've been at a long time, and I think you can, people can learn a lot from you. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing is continue to educate yourself. There are so many resources out there. There's tons of books. There's tons of articles and everything that are out there. So, uh, you know, if you want to get into sustainability, you know, don't think of it that, oh, okay, after I do, after I read two books, two articles, and two podcasts, I'm ready for the sustainability world. It is a constant journey. Um, so continue learning for first and foremost. Second, find some nonprofits that are working on sustainability issues as well. You know, Surfrider Foundation, Five Gyres Institute, uh, Lonely Whale Foundation are all addressing sustainability in the fashion world. Yeah. Um, so the conversation is starting. It's at the very early stages. So timing is right. Yeah, what an exciting time it is. Those are really good words of advice. Vibe, it's been awesome. Thank you for making time because obviously as you've just laid out for us, your, your schedule is so packed and so busy. So I really, I don't take it for granted. I, I appreciate you taking the time to sit and chat with me and share your story with um, with our listeners. Well, Derek, thanks again for having me on. I'm happy to share the insights and the experiences I've gained. And I hope that, uh, uh, you know, those folks that listen to your podcast go out and uh, become one of the army of game changers. Me too. You heard him, guys. Get out there. Go do it. Be a part of it all. And um, Vibe, we'll see you at the next Fireside Chat. You bet. Okay, man. All thanks. To hear more stories like this or to learn more about our host, visit theunderswell.com.